Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth podcast in Upstream's Uplift series. I'm Prema Gurunathan, Managing Director of Upstream. Upstream is a partnership between Imperial College London and Hammersmith and Fulham Council. We are a product of a local industrial strategy jointly published by these two organisations. And our work is driven by the belief that strong local networks, that is relationships between people in a geographical area, help people, places and organisations thrive more easily. Our vision is to turn Hammersmith and Fulham into a destination for ambitious science, tech and creative organisations with a thriving ecosystem and with White City at the epicentre of an inclusive innovation district. Since 2018, we have connected, supported and shone a light on the science, tech and creative sectors. And with this in mind, the Uplift podcast brings together two people as we seek to break down barriers and make new connections whether it is a biotech startup and a creative agency, people based in the same building, across the road, or on opposite ends of this very long and very thin borough. As always, this podcast is dedicated to those of you who enjoy delightful, uplifting vignettes you'd gain from a chat in the lift or just eavesdropping on someone else's conversations. Think of Uplift like a lift ride without the awkward silences, at least we hope so. Um, I'm delighted to have with us today Divya Venkat, who is CEO of Essia Labs and Emily Carter, founder and director of Emily Carter Designs. I'm going to introduce them and get on to questions, but what you need to know is that they've never met, either virtually or in person. Let's start with Divya. She's based at Imperial College's White City Incubator and also has an office in Huckletree, White City. Essia Labs is developing a test for Alzheimer's disease using DNA nanotechnology. Alzheimer's affects one in six of us, so as you can imagine, uh, there's going to be a lot of demand uh, as our life expectations increase. Divya's background is in uh, digital transformation with previous roles at organizations including Deloitte, Barclays and HSBC. Our second guest is Emily Carter, a designer specializing in silk accessories, stationery and furnishings. She illustrates each of her designs entirely by hand with traditional pen and paper, and her products are made by hand in England. Uh, Emily is a member of the British Fashion Council and exhibits regularly at London and Paris Fashion Weeks. She's collaborated with the likes of Aspinall of London. Her designs are stocked at Liberties and Selfridges and have been worn by the likes of Kate Moss. Emily's entire career has been in fashion, uh, with many years at Harrods where she was previously lead designer. Um, Emily is a local resident and she works out of Kindred, which is a beautiful co-working space in Hammersmith. Welcome both of you. Thank you very much, Prima. Right, let's make a start. Really the basics, which is tell us a bit more about your work, starting with Emily, please. Thank you. I'm not sure what else there is to add, actually. Um, so obviously I own a luxury brand specializing in hand illustrated silk accessories. Uh, all of my products are made in England. Half are made by my team here in London. So I have a small team of freelance tailors and the rest are made up, my, in my, up north in my factory in Macclesfield. And I actually make a lot of the products myself as well. So quality is hugely important brand value as my items are intended to be worn and used for a lifetime. Um, the designs don't go up to season, for instance, and each is crafted and illustrated by hand. Um, the products are made in small quantities and um, any kind of waste or faults are sold in sample sales. So you don't have any waste fabric or waste products, for instance. Um, my packaging is also recyclable and biodegradable where possible um, to reduce my impact on the planet as much as possible. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Emily. Divya. So um, I'm co-founder and CEO of SEO Labs. And what we do at SEO Labs is we're building a toolkit of biomarkers that allow us to identify early onset of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we work at the nexus of precision diagnostics, personalized medicine, and AI. Um, we have two propositions that we're taking to market. The first is we facilitate the discovery of new drugs um, with big pharmaceutical companies using our probes as research assays. And secondly, we're taking our diagnostic our Alzheimer's di single diagnostic to market. So these are two products that we work in. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, now, we're both, you're both clearly entrepreneurs, and we know that being an entrepreneur has clear challenges from the professional side, you know, strategy fundraising, uh, to the personal side, which is getting your own focus right, the loneliness of leadership as I see it, and work-life balance. Um, so the first question is, what is the key professional challenge you face and how have you overcome it? And that's for Divya. Yeah, so we've got two labs uh, in-house within Fulham, one of which is the Imperial Incubator. So we uh, love being here and being a part of the biotech community in West London. One of the uh, professional challenges that I'm experiencing at the moment is balancing between scaling up, being revenue generating and also making time to be forward thinking. And as, a, as an entrepreneur, I think that's where it's really difficult. How much of your time do you allocate to each one of these tasks? And especially at SEO, we're growing so rapidly. We're revenue generating. We've got two of the top five pharma companies on board. So we kind of want to leverage that momentum and continue building sales. But at the same time, we have a diagnostic that we're working on that also requires a lot of effort and time and collaborations. And in addition to that, we also are sort of, you know, thinking about our pipeline of products coming our way so all of these activities are important uh, but at the same time you have to sort of allocate your time accordingly and I think that's as, as an entrepreneur that's where I struggle the most it's balancing all of the different aspects of your job and being able to do it well and making the time to also think and 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 drive the strategy forward for the organization as well I mean Emily I mean, are these is are these challenges that you're experiencing as well Funnily enough, mine my was actually very similar. So uh, my issue is balancing creativity with scaling and sales. Um, obviously, I'm only it's only one person; it's only me running this. So obviously, you have to be the master of all trades, and it is challenging. And um, you know, people assume that I spend all day designing at the drawing board, and whilst that's a lovely idea, that's you know most certainly not the case. Most of my daily activities you know you know consist of admin accounting absolutely everything and it's hard to actually you know inevitably get into a mindset where I can properly create and you know without getting distracted so scaling is an issue for me and in the sense that I it's difficult for me to delegate tasks to other people because obviously all of the design work is so personal and it's down to me to do all of that so it's actually very difficult for me to hire anybody in that in that realm. I actually have hired somebody to do little bits of editing here and there, and that's a big step for me. Um, but it, it is difficult. Scaling is, is a challenge for me at the moment. So, yeah. And and what have you both found useful when trying to you know think about this challenge? You know, it's scaling and strategy. What's uh, have there been any people, any, you know, books you've read or just kind of any daily things you do just to kind of bring yourself back into the correct zone? 
So what I do is I try and make time for myself uh, at least half an hour every day. That's my alone time. That's after work, you know, before my, you know, before I go to bed, whenever it is. But I need 30 minutes of thinking time where I can think about things that have happened during the day. Uh, how does that influence our short-term goals? And how is that in alignment with our long-term goals? And I'm continuously using that 30 minutes every day to re-collaborate, uh, to uh, figure out how do I optimize my time? Where are my biggest, what are my biggest problems? And how am I putting things in place to address them? And some of the answers might be outsourcing because as Emily says, being a, a co-founder or a founder of an organization, you kind of need to know everything that's happening in your organization, but you have very little time to be able to do, to have in-depth knowledge of everything. So how do you build a team that would take away a lot of what you're doing, free up your time to grow the organization. And little things like, you know, maybe having someone to help with operations. Yes, we can easily do it ourselves. But the point is, how can our time be most effective and, and add the most amount of value to the organization? Those are the activities I need to be focusing on. And, and that's kind of how I try and manage that. Yeah, again, mine is, again, quite similar. I have an hour in the evening. I, have, I do yoga every day because I find I really need to rebalance my energy at the end of the day. And then I actually go to bed really early and it's not necessarily because I want to go to sleep, but I sometimes need to just sit there and think about the designs. And again, it's more design for design purposes. I find I'm very creative at night. So I need to just sit there for a couple of hours thinking of ideas, writing stuff down and just allowing myself to relax. And that's when I start to think more creatively. So again, as you said, it's allowing yourself a personal time. You know, I live on my own. And again, I think that was a really important step for me two years ago to have the space in the evenings for me to actually really start thinking creatively on a daily basis. Very good. Thank you. That's helpful. Um, so that was a professional challenge. Um, do we have a key personal challenge, either of you? Um, perhaps going from Emily? Mm, there are a lot of personal challenges, um, I find. <laughs> I said this in an interview the other day, I mean, you, you can't expect everybody to share in your vision and see where you're going and what you're doing and believe in you. And I think that was difficult for me to accept for a while, but it's something that I have accepted over the years. But also you can't expect, you know, everybody to be happy for you all the time as well, because everybody's at different stages and things. And obviously I have encountered some jealousy and resentment from people close to me. And that has been quite difficult and quite challenging over the years, I must say. I don't want to get too personal about it, but it is difficult because, again, your schedule is very different. You know, you're so passionate about what you're doing. You're doing it all day, every day, and you're sort of not thinking about everything at anything else. So it is detrimental to relationships sometimes. And I think there are sacrifices that one has to make, unfortunately. So it, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. Divya. I, 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 you know, I'm going to say what Emily said last time. I kind of, I can so relate to what she's saying. I think for me, the biggest personal challenge that I'm facing at the moment is finding the balance to invest time in my personal relationships as I find my work is all consuming. So I actually like, like you end up choosing the relationships that are the closest to you because you have very limited time that you can spend and you want to spend it with the people that you love and that you care about and that you know that are going to be in your life over the next 10, 20 years. So I think in my personal life, what I struggle with the most is balance. 
balancing to make sure that I am nurturing my personal relationships and not letting work overwhelm me. Great advice, both of you. And on that note, what advice would you give an entrepreneur starting out in your field? And, you know, I don't want to do the whole, you're female entrepreneur, but would your advice vary depending on gender or any other variable? Divya, do you want to pick it up first? Yeah, of course. I think my advice to anyone that's an entrepreneur would be to think about your end game. How are you going to get from where you are today? So from zero to 100, how are you going to do that first? How are you going to get to a stage where you're revenue generating? I think too many entrepreneurs, it's very easy to sort of think about your vision, how the world wants it, but actually not get into the numbers. And I think the most important thing for an organization, the reason we're there is to actually create revenue so you can employ people and and actually create a market for your product and that i think is one of the most important things it's making sure that your product has a market that people will pay for and you enjoy doing it so it's actually thinking through all of those steps and making sure you have a clear line of sight on how you're going to get there secondly you need to be able to pivot you need to have the ability when things go wrong to pivot. So for an ex- as an example, SCA is a US company. Uh, we raised our first our seed round and we were meant to be setting up our laboratories in Boston. So I went, I moved to America in January 2019 with the intention of setting up ESIA. We found laboratories, we were recruiting people, we were sponsoring visas. And then in March, just before I was meant to be signing the contracts, COVID struck and I had to come back to London. Now imagine being a startup, you've got your funding raised, you're sitting on money, you need to get your product to market, but America announces that it's closing its borders. You need to quickly think, what can I do? So we applied uh, to the home office, we applied for a sponsorship license, we quickly did a pivot, we ended up setting up a laboratory over here, we ended up applying for SEIS, EIS, making a lot of changes so we could still move forward. So the second piece of advice I have is being able to pivot when things go wrong is hugely important. The world keeps changing and the businesses that survive are businesses that understand it's not about us and our product, it's about what the world needs. So how are we building something that the world needs? And that might mean pivoting and that, that's really important to be able to identify that and pivot so you're constantly keeping in mind your end customers. Thank you, Divya. Emily, how do you feel? So thinking about it from from my industry perspective, I think um, obviously starting a brand is, you know, it's it's very different to a lot of other sectors in in that it takes time. You know, you can't expect some brands, you know, if, if, you know, you're already famous, you're already well known, you'll just go from zero to 100 in a couple of months. But that doesn't happen very often. And you have to be prepared to work hard for a long time before you start seeing results. It's all about connections and building rapport and building trust with your business to business customers and your, you know, direct customers as well. And it takes a really long time to build that. And I think that's something that often people don't realize, you know, they give up after two years thinking, oh, this hasn't worked or this still isn't making me money when actually, you know, it's taken me seven years to get to this point. It has, you know, you know, escalated very quickly in the last year, but it took, a long time to get to that point um i'd also say like being consistent and being really reliable is really important and you know don't allow mistakes to trip you up i you know i've made so many mistakes it's ridiculous but as long as you don't repeat them and as long as you just pick yourself up brush yourself off and move on you know don't don't let 
things like that hold you back you know we said being adaptive and being resilient is is just so important you know you never know what's going to happen in the world or in the industry you know globally so you have to be able to make quick decisions and quick changes to adapt to the environment that you find yourself in okay it's not sudden successes it's just been a lot of hard work I yeah think. an enormous amount i worked seven days a week for six years to balancing multiple three jobs and I, I i think that's really important as a message because a lot of people think that they work hard for a year or two and then success is theirs but actually perseverance is the key there are many times when I'm sure Emily can relate to this when we've had to cancel events or you've had to go I just can't leave I have to like we've worked until 3 4 a.m if we have to and you've had to prioritize work over your personal life so success only comes from hard work however great a product you have however quickly you take it to market you need to put the hours in yeah Now, I mentioned in the introduction that one of the reasons I brought both of you together was because precision plays a part in, you know, both your creations. And perhaps starting with Emily, could you talk me through the creation of your product and where the need for precision comes into play? Of course. So precision comes into pretty much every aspect of the business. I mean, starting with the design side, obviously every every design is drawn by me just with in ultimate intricacy and inaccuracy um so and obviously it's done with pens so if I make a mistake there's not much I can do about it I have to start it again and you know that goes through into the editing process with you know when everything's scanned in on photoshop I have to go through every single layer in every design to make sure all the little bits are cleaned up and all the edges are clean all the rest of it I mean it just takes hours and hours and I effectively have to go through with a microscope on photoshop to find blobs and stuff that I put on accidentally and things like that and then obviously QCing all of the items this is probably the most important thing actually when it comes to having a luxury brand people expect perfection with the price that they pay for luxury items so everything has to be quality checked to an unbelievable level like they get quality checked twice before they leave the factory but I still have to QC twice when I when I have them at home if something's going out to Selfridges or Liberty for instance I actually hire my a dear friend of mine who has you know hawk eyesight and she'll spot anything and she you know there aren't very many people who'll be able to spot things that I see but she she can you know any tiny dot or anything like that and it you know it has to just go into the sample cell because you can't you can't sell anything like that that's got a minor mistake on it thing and obviously it took years for me to get the finest quality of printing the finest quality of hemming that I could possibly get in the UK and it took a lot of trial and error to get to that as well stupid question potentially but why why not draw in pencil yeah yeah that's a very good question um personally I don't like working with pencil um I don't you don't get the same graphic kind of contrast between light and dark with pencil even if you edit it on on um, Photoshop, it still doesn't look the same. And that's the kind of aesthetic that I'm looking for. One of my, two of my competitors actually use pencil and their their designs are a lot softer, but I think mine sell so well because they're very graphic and, and striking. And I think you can only, you can only achieve that with pen, in my opinion. Divya. From our perspective, precision, it's slightly different. It's, um, it's, it's much more about, understanding what happens inside our bodies and our brains specifically. So today uh, to diagnose Alzheimer's, it's pretty much, it takes anywhere from a handful of tests to six or seven tests. And it's through a 
process of elimination that you come to a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, considering that it affects so many of us, I think one in six of us, it's a horrible thing to go through as a family. This is a problem we're gonna address at ESIA. How can we diagnose someone with precision to understand what's happening inside your brain to the point that we can go, you have Alzheimer's disease with a single test. And in order to do that, we need to understand what, what happens, you know, what is, what is your DNA telling us? What, are your, what is your RNA telling us? What is a proteomics so of the proteins in your blood? Which ones are elevated? Which ones shouldn't be elevated? What does healthy aging look like versus someone with dementia, versus someone with Alzheimer's, with someone with other neurocognitive impairments? So we work at that point where we understand in order to diagnose someone, it needs to be done in a very precise manner where we don't mislead patients, where we don't give them the wrong diagnosis. So from our perspective, it's understanding what your body is telling us and building a diagnostic using precision medicine that allows us to diagnose your disease, not just today, but many years before the onset of the disease. Because when things go wrong, it doesn't happen overnight. What are the sequence of events that goes wrong in order for Alzheimer's to manifest? So the detection technology we're working on allows us to diagnose Alzheimer's maybe 20 years before you get the disease, which allows us to then work with companies to find drugs, to actually, you know, build out the the, the the personalized medicine that you should be taking and also understand epigenetically what is leading to the pathology. And at what age are most people diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Because you say you're hoping to diagnose it 20 years earlier. So where does that move the um, benchmark to? Yeah, so most people, there are two There are two categories of people that get Alzheimer's disease. One, the first is the people that get a, have a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's and they have early onset of Alzheimer's, which is in the age of 30 to 40. But that's only 2% of the population, 2% of the people that get Alzheimer's. The remainder get late onset of Alzheimer's, which implies it's epigenetic. So it tends to be after the age of 50, 60. That thereby, uh, what we're hoping to do is not to, not just be able to predict when you're going to get Alzheimer's, but also find preventative methods. And that's where the paradigm shift in medicine needs to happen. Today, you have a problem. It's already too late. You get diagnosed. You're going to probably, you know, die with dementia in the next five to 10 years. What can we do to actually prevent it? So in other cases, you have screens for breast cancer where you screen and you capture it in its infancy. We don't do that with our brain. That's why precision diagnostics is so important. You need to capture it before the disease manifests itself. And that allows you to have interventions much sooner. Right, we're moving on to the next question, which is about you know, year-end reflections and ambitions. We are recording in December, I think we're... I was going to say we're two weeks, we're just under two weeks from Christmas. And I always think this is a good time to reflect. So um, that's starting with uh, Divya. What's been your best or your proudest moment in 2021? I think for us, for me, it's being able to open our laboratories here and to get the team up and running, because that really was a huge for me that, you know, the team that we've built and, and it, I, I'm just so proud of everyone at SCR really. So for me, the thing that I feel most happy about is 
the fact that we have a lab up and running, the fact that we're revenue generating this year and that we're building such an amazing team of people who are so passionate about wanting to change how, how we diagnose Alzheimer's disease. So these are, these are three things that I'm very happy about in 2021. Brilliant. I, I've heard you're really growing the team, which is good to know. Um, Emily? So for me this year, it was um, expanding my stockist. So I obviously got Liberty and that was actually number one on my list. I used to, I used to work at Liberty a long time ago and I used to visit the store regularly with my mum when I was little. So it's always been a kind of a dream to be stocked there. So that was my, my really exciting Yes, and my scarves for the next Alexander McQueen, which is ridiculous. So I was very, very happy with that. And actually, um, my second is um, I now work, I obviously used to work at Harrods, but I left and um, they actually asked me back on a freelance basis. And that was a really nice kind of compliment in a way, because, you know, I spent many years there and I thought to myself, oh, this probably wasted time. But actually, I realized it wasn't wasted time. It was it was a huge compliment for them to come back and be like, you know, would you like to work for us on a freelance basis and doing commissions with them and things like that? Because it's the sort of relationship I always wanted to have with them, really. Considering the global climate, I'm really proud of my business to have, you know, ridden the storm so well. So next question. Um... What are your ambitions and priorities for the business in 2022, perhaps starting with Emily? My main aim for next year is to expand my range of stockists internationally, so especially in the United States, as that's where a lot of my sales are now going, which is a really good sign. Um, so, yeah, networking and expanding in the United States. Um, I'm looking to have my own office. I'll still go to Kindred because I love it there, but I definitely need my own space um, my flat is becoming full of boxes and that's not a really nice way to live um, and I'm also looking to expand my interiors collection and potentially do clothing if I can find a sustainable way of doing it I haven't thus far figured this out I've had a collection designed for a couple of years but it's a very difficult avenue to go down but finding a way to do that sustainably with minimal waste is my goal for next year Oh, sustainability and clothes definitely mm -hmm. a tough yeah. one, isn't it? <laughs> Supply chains and everything come into it. Divya, what's what's 2022 looking like? So 2022 is going to be a big year for SEA. What we're doing is we're partnering with neurologists and doing a worldwide multi-site study in Europe, in the UK and in America. And uh, we're partnering with neurologists to get access to samples so we can track progression over time, but we can also build out our data set with the intention by the end of next year is we'll be in a position to submit uh, our Alzheimer's product uh, for FDA and C approval. So then in 2023, the intention is to take our product to market. I think I've said brilliant about 20 times on this podcast, uh, but I do mean it. That's that's great news from both of you, really. We've got to the books question, which Divya was very excited about for some reason. So I'm curious to see what she's going to suggest. She was very concerned early in this podcast when we had a quick break that uh, we had missed a question. So come on, Divya, what's your book you'd like to recommend either for inspiration or relaxation? There are two books that I've read this year that have sort of stayed with me that I found very thought provoking. And the first one is Getting to Yes by Roger Fisher and William Urie. And the second one is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Harari. And the both, they're very different 
both of the books, but both of them really gave me a lot to think about. The first one is where you learn, it's, it's very much a guide to negotiation. They talk about how we negotiate every day in our life, be it a child to a parent, or be it amongst friends as to where do you want to go out for dinner, or be it at work when you're trying to get your team to do something, or when they're telling you to do something, or be it externally when you're fundraising, or you're, or, or you're, you're taking your products to market. So negotiation is a part of everyday life. It, and this book, Getting to Yes, sort of teaches you about how can you have negotiations without conflict? And I love that. It talks about, you know, don't bargain over positions, separate people from the problem and insist on objective criteria. And he talks about uh, and they talk about how you can apply this in every aspect of your life. So I that gave me a lot to sort of think about how I was communicating with everyone. And, and the second book uh, by Harari, I love, 21 uh, Lessons of 21st Century. It sort of allows you to think about the world that we all live in. And all of the things that are going to happen during the course of our lifetime and how do we need to prepare for it, you know, in terms of the business, what are we doing to be competitive, but also adding value to the future generations and also personally, how am I, how is my life going to change as a result of living through automation? Thank you. Um, I've got the first book. I'll have a look at the second. Emily. I'm actually halfway through your second book, but actually I really want to read your first by the sounds of it, so I'm going to take note of that. Um, I tend to read quite sort of heavy books, so I recently read Stephen Hawking's book, um, Brief Answers to Big Questions, and if you want something to completely take you out of yourself and to learn sort of about quantum physics in, in an easier kind of way, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing, and it, it just, I've read it twice now, and I just, I loved it more the second time I read it, so... Um, highly recommend that book. My second one actually was by Brené Brown, who I recently found, and we'll see her TED Talk is incredibly famous. Um, I hadn't actually heard of her prior to watching her TED Talk, but um, her book's called Daring Greatly, and it, it discusses vulnerability basically as a whole, and it's psychologically absolutely fascinating. And obviously, especially being an entrepreneur and a leader, vulnerability is a very interesting discussion, I suppose. I love it. I'm going to add it to my books to read. Uh, She's amazing. <laughs> I have to say, Getting to Yes is one of those books a lot of uh, very successful entrepreneurs have kind of said, read this. Okay, um, next question. So on this podcast, we try to bring together people who don't, you know, at least on the surface have anything uh, to do much with, you know, each other's industries. Uh, but I've been surprised more than once. Um you know, that people kind of go, oh, I do this, I do that. So do either of you have, uh, so in the case, Divya, do you have a hidden creative streak or does Emily have a hidden science tech streak? Um, Emily, do you want to start? Perhaps less tech, but I actually, my intention career-wise was to study natural sciences and either become an entomologist or a biologist in general. So obviously all my work is inspired by natural nature and animals and all the rest of it. It's not, you know, it's not quite the same, but I, uh, my work is heavily based on science. All of my books are like natural history books, science books, etc. So again, it's just because one is creative you need all of the ideas and inspiration to make you creative it's not just enough to to be to be able to do art you need all the inspiration and all the ideas so but all my ideas come from science so and interestingly what 
I'm a little bit the opposite because I don't have a science background at all. It's a much more an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial background. But also, I love fashion. Fashion, I used to, because I grew up, I spent a lot of my formative years in India. And in India, at the time that I grew up, you had a lot of tailors. Tailoring is very, it's inexpensive and everyone has tailors in India. So I used to design a lot of my clothes. And one of the things I always loved was fashion. I love Alexander McQueen uh, uh, as an example. And I love how every culture has its own unique take on the materials they use, the textures, the fabrics. So Mm. I love that. So I would love to have done something in fashion, but life has just taken me in a completely different direction. Right, Uh, we're coming to the end. Uh, Penultimate question, which is how much did you know about each other's organizations at the start of the podcast? And what is the most important thing you've learned about the other person? I think for me, the thing I've I've realized the most, so I did a quick Google. (laughs) (laughs) And it was wonderful just to to know that I was meeting an award-winning British designer. So it's incredible what you've you've achieved, Emily. And it was so impressive to sort of, you know, go, wow, this is extraordinary to go from where you started to what you've achieved now. It's, and seven years isn't a long time. So, you know, hugely well done and very impressive. And I was slightly awestruck. listening to you I realize how difficult it is to balance both the creative aspects where you have to draw the designs have to continuously think about things that appeal to you but also that would appeal to the current market the colors the the patterns and at the same time forcing yourself to stop like I've done enough I need to also go and do the operational part which is incredibly difficult because in most fashion businesses they're two very separate jobs And it requires two very different brains. So it's very impressive that you're doing both. And I think my key takeaway is it's, yeah, it's, it's how difficult it is for fashion startups where you've got to do it all. Um, So I did know about what you do as well. Uh, I did a little Google search. What you do is actually quite, is related to me relatively personally. I actually, dementia does run in my family. Uh, My mother had it and my aunt does as well. So I think, you know, I didn't even realize that, that there was in any way, shape or form anything that could help with that. So it's, I'm completely in awe of what you're doing. And I think it's absolutely amazing that you're putting your business and your energy and your life's work into doing this and figuring out how to help people in the future, because it's something that I was so frustrated at the time because there was nothing that could be done. And, you know, it's, it's something that we should have that I, I feel like a lot more investment needs to go into it and nobody wants to go know it because there are no answers and that, you know, that should be by now. So I, I, honestly, I'm completely in awe of what you're doing as well and you should be really proud. Thank you so much, Emily. Okay, right. Word association round. This is when I used to get really naughty and then my colleagues have stopped me from doing that. So um, I'll tell you what I used to later. Uh, so word association round, which is I say one word and you each say the first thing that comes to mind when you hear it. And don't think too much. I don't want to hear any pauses. So it's, going to, it's supposed to go, me say something, Emily Divya. Emily Prima, Emily Divya. Okay? Right. So, Just luck. <laughs> I'm going to be awful at this. <laughs> Ditto. Okay. So precision. Medicine. Drawing. Risk. Taker. Reverse. I'm not risk averse, don't know why I said that. <laughs> Noodles. 
Pot? <laughs> Fried? Divish <laughs> is waving her hands. Entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs. Us. <laughs> I can't, my mind's gone blank. There are so many words that have come to mind. <laughs> You're going to like the next one. Elephants. In the room. Large. Final one, not a surprise, Christmas. Ah, oh, parties. <laughs> Joy. Right, and that is the end of our podcast. Uh, thank you both so much, Emily and Divya, for being, taking the time off of your very, very busy, hectic schedules um, and you know, for sharing and opening it up uh, so much and your insights, your recommendations, and it's always hugely appreciated by the audience. So thank you both so much and all the best for 2022 to you and to all our listeners. Thank you.